VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, September the 29th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams is producing the program today. Let's get at it. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long-distance 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So it looks like another pretty nice day here in the metro region anyway. Temperatures in the mid to high teens, but boy, oh boy, what's with the humidity at this point in September? Yesterday was extremely humid, at least certainly where I live. This morning, I thought I was going to have to rip the doorknob off the bedroom door. It was jammed, stuck tight. Of course, the swelling of the door with the humid temperatures, but I guess it's hard to complain when the weather is as temperate as it is. Okay. So yesterday, as many of you know, was the 50th anniversary of the 1972 Summit Series, of course, where Canada defeated the Soviet Union. Paul Henderson became an icon. So I was just surfing channels yesterday when I was doing some supper prep, and there was an interview being uh, done with Sir Savard, Paul Henderson, and Ken Dryden. And they were, of course, reliving, recounting the experiences of that monumental series. So a couple of interesting things. Number one, 10 of the members of that team are no longer with us. They've passed, but of course it's 50 years later. Then Ken Dryden told a story which I thought was really quite interesting. I knew that the Canadians had traveled to Moscow for the second four-game set against the Soviets, but there was 3,000 Canadians traveled. And Dryden went on to say that, you know, it was unlikely that Canadians did much travel outside of North America, perhaps maybe going to the Caribbean, but not to Europe, not to the Eastern Bloc countries, and certainly not to the Soviet Union. But they did, in strong numbers, 3,000. I was really surprised. He went on to tell a story where some of those 3,000 in a bar, you know, the chant at the Canada Games is, Go, Canada, go, right? Go, Canada, go. So they didn't know much in the way of Russian. They knew a couple of words. Of course, yes and no. Da, niet. So the chant then became, and I remember hearing it because I have a vinyl rendition of the 72 Summit Series uh, radio uh, play-by-play. So the chant then became, da, da, Canada, niet, niet, Soviet. I mean, one of the greatest chants of all time. Da, da, Canada, niet, niet, Soviet. Anyway, it was a great story. Uh, and Aaron Judge got it done last night to the Yankee slugger with his 64, uh, 61st home run, of course, tying the legend Roger Maris with 61 for the American League record in a regular season. Did it in Toronto, of course. They pummeled the Jays again, unfortunately. But a cool part of this story is the home run went into the Jays' bullpen. And the Jays' closer, Jordan Romano, he eventually passed it off to uh, one of the Yankees. And, you know, class move. Had it ended up in the stands, it would have been the big racket about how much the ball is worth because Judge would love to have the ball back. And there's a story back to when Mark McGuire hit his record-setting home run. So the guy in the stands caught it. The Cardinals offered this fan a uh, signed bat, ball, jersey, couple of things like that. Nothing really serious. And some tickets to a game or something. Not a lot for a record-setting ball. The guy said, okay, but I really want to meet Mark McGuire. McGuire refused to meet the guy. So Buddy uh, said, okay, no deal. Three months later, he sold the ball for $2 million. And all McGuire had to do was shake the man's hand. And wouldn't do it. McGuire is renowned as being a bit of a jerk, I suppose. I read back to some local action. Uh, Liam Hickey, I meant to bring the update yesterday. They are playing, of course, over in Ostrava in the Czech Republic in the International Para Hockey Cup. So remember back in the Beijing Olympics, they met their arch rival, the United States, twice. The States beat them 5 nothing in the preliminary round, and then in the gold medal game, beat them 5 nothing again. On Tuesday, they beat us 8-2. Hickey didn't... Uh, count in the scoreboard, I don't think, 
but lost 8-2, to two, so the Americans continue to have our number. And on the local golf front, giving the update on Gander professional uh, Blair Bursey, he's tied for 23rd now after the second round in the uh, qualifying stage for the Corn Ferry Tour, so Bursey in pretty good spot to move on to the next stage. Keep it up, young fella. All right. A couple of interesting ones today in history. We're easing into it today. Let's get the phone lines going, though. Look, the space, again, I'm all over the space stuff. It was today in history, 1988, where the space shuttle Discovery blasted off from Cape Canaveral in Florida. They hadn't had the manned space travel since, of course, the Challenger disaster, but the Discovery shuttle took off today. And really curiously enough, you know, Ireland and the home of Catholicism, the Irish Catholic, the Mick, it took until 1979 before a pope ever stood on Irish soil. And it was Pope John Paul II. Imagine it took all that time for a pope to visit Ireland of all places. Anyway, there you go. Price of gas. So someone complained yesterday we haven't been talking about the price of gas. Okay, the price of gas. It's up not much, uh, about a cent, 1.1 cents. Diesel up 4 cents. And the stove oil and home heating fuels are up. The big whopping increase is in Labrador, 12.54 cents for stove oil. Propane, around a half cent. So the trick here is, even though it won't make it feel any better, when we were told that there would be some more transparency and more instruction and rationale offered by the PUB, am I missing those press conferences or briefings or whatever? So has any of that happened? as opposed to the fairly generic news releases that we see when there's an adjustment made to the prices. But there you go. And on the home heating stuff, I'm going to throw it out there again because before long, it's going to be a big part of the story. Now that we've got to renegotiate our carbon tax arrangement with the federal government, with the exemption that was on home heating fuel, the negotiations have stalled apparently on that front because we need that to be exempt. We just need that to happen. So we'll see what the liberals here and the liberals there can figure out on that front. And here we are, a month into the school year, thereabouts. So I haven't heard anything in the way of mass absenteeism. So we all know that there's a checklist and parents and children or school-aged children are supposed to, you know, self-assess whether or not you should indeed go to school. Now, if you've got the sniffles from an allergy or you've got a little bit of a prolonged cough because you had a cold, you can go to school, right? You can, of course, you can go to school. But the whole bit about testing and everything has just gone by the wayside. You know, people have given up on it. And I understand it's been a long, torturous couple and a half years, but it's not necessarily gone away, and that meaning COVID. But anyway, we'll see what goes on. Plus, here's where I think the real glaring gap is. So there was a symposium after the school year ended last year to look at the concept of learning loss and whether or not the graduates from grade 12 for the past two years were really prepared to move on to post-secondary if that's where they were headed. The concept of learning loss is absolutely real. And people talk about it at the academic level, whether it be professors at uh, Western University, this one pr lady in particular. She's a professor of education and global development at the Faculty of Education at Western University. Talking about the need for a recovery plan. We can't assess the level of learning loss unless we carefully examine it. This is important. It might not rear its head this year, but somewhere down the line, if you're underprepared to move on from grade to grade, it will come back to bite us, and we cannot afford that. So the recovery plan for this lady's estimation, I can't pronounce her name, so I'm not going to try. She's talking about rejigging the curriculum for all grade levels for at least two years to have a firm understanding of exactly what was delivered in the classroom and how it was absorbed and understood by the students. Have we done it? I haven't heard one peep about what came out of that high school uh, education symposium. 
and it's fine for Memorial University to understand or for Marine Institute or CNA to understand what the new graduates have learned and to accommodate. And I know that the school district says that while we still have you in the K-12 system, teachers will be able to know what went on in the previous grade, whether it be grade 7s moving in at 8 or 9s and 10, whatever the case may be. It's fine to say that, but have we done anything to actually adjust the curriculum? Have we examined what learning loss looks like and feels like amongst the 66,000 approximate students here in the K-12 system? I don't think we have. There's absolutely no excuse to not be fully attentive to that. We all know the worries and the woes of the day. And for any hope for long-term prosperity and healthy communities and viability, whatever word you want to slap in there, sustainability, it will require a well-educated public. And if learning loss hasn't been grappled with in this province, then we're setting kids up for failure. So what are we doing? And what's going on there? And you know, with the absenteeism, you've heard me talk about this many times, is we have to have a better relationship between department to department about the folks that are chronically absent from school. Some 10% of students are chronically absent uh, during the run of a school year. The staggering stat there comes, if you're chronically absent in grade six, 75% of those children will not graduate high school. So these things in combination are critically important. I know there's big issues of the day, but I think that's one of them. You want to talk about it? Let's do it. Let's go to Labrador. And we just mentioned the fact there's a whopping big increase in stove oils in Labrador, over 12 and a half cents. And some of these stories are extremely tricky. So we know the devastating story, the tragic loss of Burton Winters. We understand the story surrounding Mark Russell and Joey Jenkins, uh, fishermen from Mary's Harbor, who were lost. There's zero search and rescue capacity in Labrador. It doesn't make any sense. So Yvonne Jones, the longtime member for the region, apparently has asked for and is hopeful that it will be funded in next year's budget federally to see some established fast craft rescue stations and three life craft stations across Labrador's coast. How that's not in place is utterly shameful. It truly is. You know, add to that, there's a distinct need for fixed-wing aircraft as part of search and rescue capacity in Labrador, but there's nothing. There's nothing. Now, it wasn't so long ago Defense Minister Anita Anand was in Labrador at Five Wing Goose Bay to talk about investments to the nature of $38.6 billion over the next uh, 20 years for the four northerly bases to deal with NORAD issues. So good, an investment in Five Wing Goose Bay, it's an international commitment. I get it, fair ball. But search and rescue, we can't just be hopeful that there's some search and rescue capacity. It's mandatory. It's a distinct misunderstanding of other members of Parliament exactly what is included in the expansive nature on land of Labrador and the endless breadth of the merciless North Atlantic. So hopefully Ms. Jones has enough clout and sway in the party to see that funded because that's just got to happen. And then it's the concept of the emergency beacons. Again, it's not my money. It's easy enough for me to say you should spend money in one area or another. You'll do what you see fit for your own personal safety. But... There's got to be some move to ensure that fishing vessels have an emergency response beacon, the EPIRB. You know, if we had some idea where poor Joey Jenkins and Mark Russell were, we might have stood a chance to find them. So you can take that on too if you're so inclined. Okay, let's move to the southwest coast. No one's forgot about it because, of course, it's monumental and the rebuild and the collecting our thoughts continues in many of those communities that have been battered. So yesterday, much to the chagrin of some and the delight of others, the Prime Minister was there speaking with residents and surveying the damage. Alongside the Premier, Minister Parsons, Goody Hutchings, Seamus O'Regan O'Regan were there. Some people, and you know what it's like, this is the epitome of damned if you do, damned if you don't. 
you know, at this stage, leadership is required. Some people were quite pleased to see the Prime Minister, others, not so much. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. So they talked about the establishment of the $30 million relief package. Okay. But the Prime Minister also added that the federal government will not have a separate additional pot of relief funding coming from Ottawa. Hmm. Said so they're going to partner in and support the province's $30 million. How that looks and the, the divvy of who's, who spends what on that $30 million, I really don't know. But here's how it breaks down. It's $1,000 per household for people who have been temporarily evacuated from their primary residence during the storm and are able to return by Friday. $10,000 per household for people who have been displaced and are unable to return. There will be $500,000 to the Canadian Red Cross to continue supporting their claims for immediate assistance and for temporary accommodation assistance. Pretty important. Uh, $500,000 distributed amongst affected communities based on their individual needs to cover things like employee overtime, barricades, and any other unanticipated expenses. Then 25 minutes for the affected communities to begin rebuilding. And we've all had the conversation, and some people tell me it's quite cold to talk about how and where we rebuild, but of course that's got to be a key focus. And that's not to diminish the devastation and the loss and the loss of life. And people's lives have been turned upside down. But it's got to be part of the conversation. Of course it has. And some people in the area saw a story where this one woman was quoted today as, she's not doing it. She's not rebuilding anywhere near where the storm surge may hit in the future. So part of this money that are going out the door, and it should start flowing by Monday, good. You won't have to repay it, even if you're able to get some insurance compensation. So it's going out the door, and, you know, we can all hope that it's spent the way it's uh, intended to be spent but that money will flow so i guess that's the good news and the donations you know her, the feds aren't, aren't going to create a separate package of money what they're going to do is to match our donations our money our donations to the canadian red cross so some 20 million dollars will be spent there so i've heard it uh, spoken to twice or two different ways one, it was $10 million, that would be doubled, a match, pardon me, to be 20 And one, that is 20 yet to be matched to be 40 So we'll get some clarification when we can on that front. All right, and your donations. Good on you. People have done what they always do. But I don't think there's, at this moment in time, any need for more clothing to be sent, for instance. So we keep an eye on some of the request lists that are coming out of the region. So it's much more in the world of the toiletries these days, you know, razors and shaving cream, and baby formula and diapers and pillows and blankets and bedding. Those types of things are what's really required at this moment in time. But if you still want to send something, try to make sure that it's clean and uh, packaged and marked as to what it is so we can spare some of the volunteers the hard work of sifting through the donations, but it's more the world of toiletries and that kind of stuff at this moment in time. And of course, cash is always king. So thank you for donating if and when you have. But here we go. We're all going to still be watching what happens on the southwest coast as we try to help navigate. And this was always going to be the case. I was just waiting for the arts community to step up because they always do. They always do. And in this case, there was an announcement yesterday from Shandy Ganock frontman, uh, Chris Andrews. Had a boy, Chrissy. They're going to hold a benefit concert at the Mary Brown Center on the 30th of October. Still finalizing the, the lineup of artists who will participate. It will indeed include Shandy Ganock. No surprise here. Arts community, every single time they stand up and do something. And this is going to be all the money going out to the Southwest Coast. They're hoping to raise in the neighborhood of $500,000 so. Bravo to whoever's involved, and apparently the venue's coming at no cost, and there's going to be some participation and support given by the St. John's uh, Sports and Entertainment Group, Jill Brewer, who's now the CEO. So good on everybody, and hopefully that will be a whopping big success, and the money will be raised and get to the folks who need it the most. That boy, Chrissy. And coming up today, da, da, da. 
Why? I'm just, uh, anyway. Uh, anyway, let's keep going. Healthcare is always front, and front of mind for folks. There will be a press conference today held by the Minister of Health and Community Services, Tom Osborne. The focus areas apparently are going to be access to primary care and then the ongoing efforts for the recruitment and the retention of healthcare professionals. So we're going to carry that live here on VOCM coming up at 1 p.m. this afternoon. And quickly, I see that police are warning of the presence of fentanyl in some of the illicit drugs being sold in Cornerbrook and surrounding area. You know, it's time to have a look at when drug dealers are willing to put such a deadly substance like fentanyl into whatever drug they're selling. It just comes with an air of maliciousness that you've never seen before. Purposefully, willingly killing people. Now, of course, you can die from illicit drugs without the presence of fentanyl, but it becomes that much more dangerous. And again, it's easy to say, just don't do drugs. And if it was really that simple, we would have cured that ill a long time ago. But we have an opioid epidemic in the country. We just do. And if you and your social circles or someone in your family and you know they're a user, please do get a naloxone kit. It can simply save someone's life. So fentanyl in the drugs out around. So you want to talk about that. I don't think we talk about it enough, to be honest. And for your information, uh, the COVID hope was updated yesterday. Four additional COVID-related deaths. Hospitalizations are up to 13. Just for your information, you can handle that as you see fit. Let's, before we get to the break, let's go to line number one and say good morning to the Liberal member for Long Range Mountains. That's Goody Hutchings. Good morning, Goody. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. And look, thanks for your uh, recap of what's going on down here on the South West Coast. I drove over to Burgio last night from the Port of Basque area, and, you know, whatever adjective you want to use, that's it. It's more than devastating. It's beyond comprehension what we've seen there. One gentleman said to me when I was walking through the rubble the other day, he said, this looks like a movie set. It doesn't look real. So, look, I do want to thank all the volunteers, the first responders. They are putting in long days, long hours. Um, the community has been incredible. Um, and, and as you said, the donations coming in are, are fierce. You're right. People don't need clothing right now. Um, and then when they do get relocated to housing, they will need help with, with household items. But, Patty, the other thing we've got to remember is folks do have to register with the Red Cross. The number is 1-800-863-6582. Or you can go online to redcross.ca forward, forward slash Hurricane Fiona. That's how you get in the system. So they do have to register. The town has done a great job as well. They have an emergency command center set up. The number there is 709-695-9871. So, again, folks do have to register with the Red Cross. Um, And, look, the prime minister was in town yesterday. It was was incredible. Uh, It was very moving for everybody there. But, of course, for him to be on the ground and see the devastation and, as he said time and time and time again, don't worry, the federal government will be there for people. But the donations that are coming in from the Red Cross, you're right, yesterday the amount was about $10 million, So we will match that to about $20 million. But folks need to realize that's just one pot of money. The province announced their $30 million yesterday, which we will be a part of. There's another program called the Disaster Financial Assistance Agreement, which is done in partnership with the feds and the province. This this will be hundreds of millions of dollars to get this whole area and, and the whole of, of eastern Canada. 
back on its feet. And so we develop a plan with the communities, then with the province, and then with us coming in to make sure that we're there to get people back on their feet. How was it evaluated in the final decision for the federal government not to establish a separate standalone pot of money for funding for relief as opposed to simply supporting the province? And secondly to that, what does that mean? Does it mean that the federal government will pay 15, we pay 15, or what does that relationship look like? Well, if you look back at the previous disasters and the uh, the, the terrible experiences that we've had here in Newfoundland, you need a, you need somebody on the ground to funnel this through, Patty, right? Which, of course, is the province. They have they have the, the boots on the ground to do this. The last time I can tell you, one of the one of the disasters we had, the province paid a couple of million dollars, and we ended up paying 19 million. So we will end up paying the lion's share. But look, the reconnaissance, as I call it, is being done now. There's engineers on the ground to see the structural damage to not only homes, but to the municipal infrastructures, to bridges, to roads. Um, uh, the town is, is and, and the towns are looking at how do we um, get neighborhoods in place that we can start the process of rebuilding. So this will be a very sizable um, uh, thing that we do from the federal government, and we are there to help. We will be there every step of the way. So I want people to think it's just not the Red Cross donations. That will help the Red Cross initiatives and what they're doing to help people. But the big overall spend will be coming where the federal government will be paying the lion's share of this. Look, there's small craft harbors damaged. There's, you know, what, what's been done to the fishery is, is scares me, frankly. When you look at the ecosystem that's been disrupted by this storm, you know, basically the bottom of the ocean in some of these areas was sandblasted. So what that's going to do to our fishing industry next spring, I'm really concerned about that. As again, like I said, the infrastructure and the big thing, Patty, that we all have to talk about, how do we now build back smarter and better so that, God forbid, when these happen again, and we all know they are, look what's happening in Florida, the hurricane there, we have to build infrastructure that's built for 50, 100 years out and that's built to weather these storms. Communities have some hard decisions to make. I must have heard from 50 people, I'm never living near, near the ocean again. So do communities now have to start assessing, okay, this is a floodplain, this is a, a, a surge area. We, we need to encourage people and have programs to get people to live in safer areas. Sadly, the whole south coast, the areas that we've seen is total decimation like you've seen shoreline destroyed right you know people refer to the fishing stage as lost and think well that's a shack and a splitting table that could have housed every bit of gear they had the stage exactly. depends on this type of enterprise yeah. people have yeah. you know the thought is maybe gfo waves licensing fees and stuff for next year in addition no. to some supports so i don't know what's going to happen but there's an awful lot of people that whatever insurance they have in place whether or not they actually get compensation it won't cover the entirety replacement cost for some of these some of these yeah. distinct losses and not to distract from Fiona because of course it's massive but your federal riding nudges right up against uh, your colleague Yvonne bon Jones federal riding Labrador and I mentioned off the top the lack of search, search and rescue capacity you know regardless of where you live in this province that's a topic that should concern us all so she's hoping for fast craft rescue stations some uh, life raft stations no mention of fixed wing aircraft What's the what federal government have to do on the timeline? What, because, of course, with no capacity there, people are being lost unnecessarily so. Patty, I'm going to give everybody a little history lesson. Do you remember one of the first things we did, we promised, and what we redid? We rebuilt and reopened the search and rescue center with Coast Guard in St. John's, which you may recall was closed. And that was the first step. We've put uh, search and rescue centers. There was one that was reopened in my riding in the north. In St. Anthony, there was an, 
there were three others open around the province. And yes, we need others in, in other parts of the province. But uh, just remember, folks, that we reopened what was closed and actually rebuilt a phenomenal center because all that was moved by the previous government to Halifax. And I hate saying that. But I'm going to tell you, we understand how important the coast and the coastal communities and keeping people safe is. I appreciate the time this morning. I know you're heading over to Ramia, but uh, there's a lot of work yet to be done. Actually, I suppose I should ask this. Talk about where and how we rebuild. Will there be caveats associated with support coming from the federal or provincial governments about where people rebuild? Because we might just be rebuilding, just seat knocked down again in some years to come. Well, that's up to the communities, that's up to the municipalities to decide in their municipal planning. But I can tell you, in the four days I've spent in Port of Basque and down in Isle of Mort, Rose Blanche, Marguerite Fox, Roost, that area, and uh, they're saying, like, we cannot rebuild here again. And remember, it's, it's tragic to see people looking for photographs and their father's urn and Christmas decorations and precious pictures. That's all, that rips the heart out of you. But the municipalities also have to look at, we can't keep replacing this infrastructure on these coastal communities, only for it to be blown out again in a terrible storm in four or five years. Appreciate your time. Thanks, uh, thanks, Goody. And, Patty, again, thanks to everybody. You know, it, it's amazing when you see the response. Newfoundlanders and Labradorians have big hearts, but, man, they've really come to help these folks. Thanks again, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Goody Hutchins. She's the Liberal MP for the Long Range Mountains. Let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number two. Good morning, Michelle Noftel. You're on the air. Oh, good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm doing great. How about you? Good, thank you. So last time we spoke, it was about your exploits as a musician, but you've added some different roles to your uh, resume since then. Yes, that's right. So uh, since we've last spoke, I, um, I've transitioned to a career in counseling. Um, but I do also integrate music into um, my services that I offer that way. Um, and the reason I'm calling this morning, and I just want to thank you um, for making the time for me to share about this uh, program, because I know that the devastation of what's happening on our southwest coast is what is paramount and on everyone's minds right now. Um, but this offering is, um, this is for families who are coping with uh, Alzheimer's and related dementias and their caregivers. So um, as, a, um, as a counselor and a, and a music integrated counselor, um, I believe, of course, firmly in the therapeutic effects of music. Um, and I also have a colleague, Renee White, who is a certified music therapist. And she also, of course, has a lot of skills and experience in working with populations um, and using music to help, um, help them meet their wellness goals. So we've come together to collaborate and offer a support program for families um, with loved ones with this diagnosis and their caregivers. So what it looks like is that uh, once a week for six weeks, and this is for um, folks living in the metro area, um, Renee will offer a music therapy session, group session, with um, the persons with that diagnosis. And simultaneously, I will offer a workshop for their caregivers. So, Patty, oftentimes, and as anyone who is a um, the primary caregiver of somebody with this diagnosis will tell you, accessing support or even having any time at all to yourself, it's one of the biggest challenges um, because you you just can't leave a loved one alone who ha- who is you know 
uh, on this journey. And so um, one of the barriers for caregivers in accessing support is care for their loved ones while they are trying to do that. So by offering both these groups simultaneously in the same space, in the same building, separate rooms, um, we're hoping to uh, address that barrier. Music and singing or simply listening to someone sing can be an emotional release for the caregiver. But interestingly enough, there's a lot, and I only know this because I looked it up after I saw your email a couple of days ago, the relationship between music and someone with Alzheimer's is fascinating. Key parts of the brain that are impacted by Alzheimer's are relatively undamaged by the disease when it comes to music and recollection of singing songs and the verses and the, the, uh, pardon me, the words to a song. I was absolutely blown away when I read that. Yeah, it really is. Uh, it can be a really beautiful experience, um, and, uh, and and you're absolutely right. So um, accessing parts of the brain that otherwise can't be accessed is absolutely a part of this um, musical experience that Renee offers. But also, um, it's an opportunity for people with Alzheimer's and related dementias are often uh, denied the opportunity for, you know, pleasurable experiences, um, opportunities to socialize like Alzheimer's is such an isolating disease for everyone involved and um, even making new memories so uh, there's just there's so many opportunities and listening is definitely one of them so then the four domains of music therapy there's listening there's also recreating so taking um, music that people already know and for example it can look like uh, creating new lyrics to a song that's already familiar Songwriting and composition is another uh, component of that. And improv. And within those four domains, there's endless possibilities for um, people who are accessing music therapy, like clients um, with a diagnosis like Alzheimer's, also for caregivers. So within the group that I've, I would work with, um, it would be psychoeducational. So by that I mean I would be um, affirming for caregivers what the experience is like for them in caring for their loved one. Um, grief is a big part of that. And when you are caring for somebody with uh, Alzheimer's, that grief gets complicated. So because you're losing someone that's right in front of you, um, and they're still physically there. And uh, so we will explore the experience of grief and what that looks like, ways to cope. Um, stress management is a huge uh, piece for caregivers and so important that they don't always um, have an opportunity to access that kind of support. And of course, being um, a musician myself and um, a music integrated counselor, um, I have this, my spring training was completing a, a training program whereby I worked with a music to incorporate music for people to do things and learn about as so those four domains of music therapy all incorporate into my, my workshops as well. Where and when for the workshops, Michelle? So they're taking place at St. Peter's uh, Parish Hall in CBS, and it starts on October 12th, and we're holding it midday on Wednesdays for six weeks. So it'll be at 11 to 12 in the day, and the reason for that time is because with um, Alzheimer's, there are issues like sundowning that it makes it difficult for um, for persons with that diagnosis to um, engage, right? So there, there's things that come with that that we want to be sensitive to. So for anyone interested, um, I, I think I sent you a, a 
digital poster that if you if you would like to share, um, and that has the information on it as well. But anyone interested uh, is welcome. They're welcome to reach out to me at my um, email address, which is opalcounselingnl at gmail dot com, and then I will redirect them to Renee's website where they can register and then have a conversation with Renee um, about you know the individual needs of um, the loved one with this diagnosis to make sure that this program is appropriate for them. Uh, how much the cost and would this qualify or be eligible for insurance coverage? So it's uh, $225, $225 in tax and depending upon people's individual insurance policies there may be coverage. I appreciate the time. Good luck with this. It sounds great, Michelle. Thank you very much, Patty, for your time. Take good care. Okay, you too. All right, bye-bye. Bye. Uh, and all that world, you know, when we talk about preparing for the future, because it, it costs less and, of course, is less chaotic, chaotic when we are prepared, this, these are numbers coming from the Canadian Study on Health and Aging. So in 2016, there was an estimated 564,000 Canadians living with Alzheimer's, or li- pardon me, living with dementia. By 2031, the estimation would be that there'd be 937,000. And by 2050, they're going to be closer to 2 million. Those are numbers that came from that particular piece of research. Just imagine the planning that's required to make sure we are prepared. Because like everything else in this world, if you want to do things up front to be prepared, it's less costly, less chaotic. The the support programs will be there for those who have dementia or Alzheimer's and, of course, their caregivers. Let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back. Uh, Line number three, Junior, you're on the air. Good morning, Patrick. Morning to you. Uh, Happy Thursday to you and David. Same to you. Good. Uh, Just let your listeners know who I am, Patty. I I represent a group called Sam and Watcher's Assistance Group. And um, I guess uh, our group is to Sam and what uh, Eugene Nippert is to Moose. So, but I'm calling today, Patty, as of yesterday, uh, the SCNL, uh, which is the uh, Somata Council of Newfoundland and Labrador, I was a secretary of that uh, group, and they're having a meeting here in Grand Falls, Windsor, uh, Saturday. And so I called to see why I wasn't invited, and I was told that I wasn't secretary anymore. And I have no idea what happened. I uh, called the president, and he said I was replaced because it was a two-year term. And uh, there was no AGM or anything like that to tell me that I wasn't secretary or somebody else was taking my place. And I asked who the secretary is and uh, going to be at this meeting, taking minutes and notes, because that was my job. And they have an incumbent. That's basically what I was told. So uh, I asked the president again, you know, how come that uh, I was being outed? And he said, because our group doesn't uh, represent the values of the other groups. Now, Patty, my group has no say into the SCNL. We're not invited to it. So I have no say. My job with the SCNL was to take the minutes, pass the minutes around to the, the other groups that are there. So I wasn't going to complain about catch and release because, you know, of course, our group is totally against catch and release. And because I'm being ousted uh, for some reason, uh, I basically am calling to uh, ask somebody in the opposition uh, to ask the Minister of Fisheries or the Premier are they entertaining the thought 
of privatizing our rivers in Newfoundland and Labrador. How would that work? How would that work? Well, the Maya Green report uh, mentioned something about that, Patty, and uh, it's been tried in Newfoundland at least seven times to privatize our rivers. And uh, I guess, I think the last time, I forget when it was, I think it was in the 90s, this, uh, there was a reading that went through the House. It was going in for the second reading. And I think Brian Tobin or Clyde Wells were there. And anyway, it didn't get to the second reading. So uh, we were saved from privatization of our rivers. And uh, the retention anger, Patty, is what I'm calling for if he's listening. Uh, the retention anger is on the verge of losing his right to uh, catch a salmon and eat it for food. So, you know, I'm just trying to find out if there's something in the works, uh, what's going on here, because, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, inside anymore, like, you know, and it's good to have an opposition, Patty. If there was no opposition, and then I guess our rivers would have been privatized long ago. The only province in North America that I know that does not have privatized rivers, and we're still allowed to uh, uh, catch a salmon and eat it. And if the uh, we're allowed two, Patty, so that's a body count. Every time there's two salmon killed, it's a body count. Catch and release has no body count. It's unregulated. Oh, it's okay in cold temperatures, but as the temperature goes up, so does the uh, mortality rate of salmon. And I got to uh, uh, commend Jerry Burns, by the way, when he was the Minister of Fisheries three years ago. He ordered a study on catch and release and uh, supported by DFO, which was uh, one of the most comprehensive uh, reports ever done on catch and release. It was uh, uh, released last year, and you can go in on their website, the government website or DFO website, and look at uh, the catch and release program, what the mortality rate is. And the government put out a release this year in the paper, I read it among the papers, that they were asking when the water temperature was 18 degrees for uh, people to stop catching and releasing at 18 degrees, Patty, and because the mortality rate was uh, it was high. And when it goes to 19, it just goes again. When the temperatures of the rivers hit 22 degrees, you've got a 60% mortality rate. Now, salmon don't die right away, Patty. In this report that Jerry Burns did, uh, it takes 30 days for a lot of these salmons to even die. If they're touched by human hands at all when they're released, uh, it just burns the skin in that often. So. Fair ball. I'm not sure what to say about your the moves made by the board to replace you without notice or no AGM or what have you, but I appreciate the chat about uh, the catch and release issue. You know, for some people... I'm not a master angler, but they play them too long, keep them out of the water too long, and don't know how to release them, and don't pay attention to the water temperature, consequently leading to whatever people use as the mortality rate when catch and release is implied, is uh, is used. I appreciate the call, Junior. Thanks a lot. You're welcome, Patty. You have a great day. You too. All the best. And David, and David too. Bye-bye. Absolutely. Bye-bye. Yeah. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the Liberal member for Virginia Waters Pleasantville, the Minister of Environment and Climate Change. That's Bernie Davis. Minister Davis, you're on the air. Thank you, Patty. How are you doing today? Doing okay. How about you? Excellent. I guess I, I first want to start off by saying um, our thoughts and prayers are with those, uh, our friends and family on the southwest coast of our province. Uh, the destruction of the community out there and their houses and stuff has been, uh, you know, heartbreaking to see for sure. 
Absolutely, I think everyone would uh, would agree. It's been uh, it's been a long few days, and I at one point on Saturday I had to turn away because it was just overwhelming. Oh, I, I, I couldn't agree more with you. It's, it's a challenge that uh, I'm, I'm glad that, um, you know, it was over now and hopefully uh, the rebuilding will start as quick as we possibly can. And I know the Premier, Minister Parsons and Minister Lovelace were out on the ground and, and working hard to try to uh, put as much resources as we can behind it. Fair ball. So let's talk about the uh, transitional support programme. Yes, uh, thank you, Paddy. I uh, just wanted to uh, touch base. We, we announced uh, several months ago that we will be doing a transitional support program to go in line to support our small business and small employers uh, with our minimum wage increase that would be happening on October 1st. Um, so we tried to create a balanced approach on this. So the transitional support program will, uh, launched, uh, will launch today. Uh, you can apply today, but um, applications are accepted uh, today right on until December 1st. Um, you can start your process uh, through the, the, our website here. With uh, There's a button on the, the lead page for the Environment and Climate Change website. website. Uh, I know that's a little bit different because it is a labor side, but that falls under my portfolio as well. What essentially it is, Patty, is um, it's an opportunity for the small uh, business that would be the uh, least uh, have the least ability to um, weather through uh, an increase of um, uh, minimum wage. So 20 or less employees uh, would be the threshold, and those that are eligible can receive up to $20,800 uh, $20, uh, over the, uh, the fiscal year um, 2023. Is there any requirement that goes with keeping the exact same number of employees or what have you? Because that's some of the worries that people have, is all of a sudden if I'm an owner or I have managers, all of a sudden if I have to pay people more, I will just have less people and I'll put more effort in myself. So do they have to keep all the employees on staff? Yeah, so uh, the, the threshold, we had to set a threshold, and this came directly out of the Minimum Wage uh, Review Committee. Uh, they suggested that uh, if we're going to increase minimum wage uh, to support small business, uh, those that are, you know, 20 or less should get some uh, grant or, or program. And, and so we, we took that uh, advice and developed a program that we, we see here today uh, that would support them with covering the cost for those businesses uh, for their minimum wage employees. Um, for that 50 cent increase per hour up to uh, $20,800 per uh, for the year. And they will be paid, once they apply for that up until December 1st, uh, they'll be paid in advance for that um, uh, money and uh, up to 80% of it. And then the final uh, report will come in and then we'll clear up the rest of the accounting for that purpose. Okay, Fairball, before we run out of time, I want to talk about your portfolio in a different angle. This was an interesting question posed by a caller a couple of days ago. When it comes to the environmental assessment being done by, or done by, I don't even know who, but the project for uh, World Energy GH2, who was doing the environmental assessment? Uh, Patty, that's a, good, that's a good question. We have a legislative process in place for the environmental assessment. Uh, there's, uh, it's done by staff uh, in, in our department as well as, um, you know, the, uh, the guidelines that will be put out um, in, in general terms, it, when someone applies for environmental assessment process, they register their documents uh, with the department. There's a 45-day period, 35 of which are um, public consultation, uh, where we develop uh, the questions and the concerns that people have for the project uh, that would be coming in, whatever project. It could be this project, or it could be a mining project, it could be a trail system. Uh, then the option is to either you can release the project uh, based on some conditions or send it to further assessment, either uh, an environmental preview report or an environmental impact statement. Um, we're looking at the environmental impact statement. Uh, there's a committee created. 
based on the departments that would have the biggest impact uh, uh, involved. In this case, it would be like natural resources. It would be uh, fisheries and forestry. It could be uh, environment and climate change, of course. It could be um, uh, water resources. Those would form the basis for a committee. The committee would get together, develop guidelines to provide that information to the proponent, and then the proponent would have up to a period of time to to provide the the uh, environmental impact statement back to the department uh, to address those concerns. So it could be as much as three years with uh, three uh, one-year extensions after that, or it could be a, a very quick process if they put their uh, money behind it to to develop the projects that they need or the the studies that they need, the um, work that they need to do. For for instance, it could be, uh, you know, bat studies or avian studies, or it could be uh, hydrological studies that's required. Um, that that's Each project is different, uh, but uh, goes through a similar um, process that's legislatively governed. Okay, so for bite-sized morsels, the provincial government does the environmental assessment, gives their findings to the company, and then they have to address any shortcomings or red flags that are in it. So is that basically what you just said? That, that's exactly what I said uh, in, in a very uh, fulsome way, uh, Patty. Okay, so let's just say you highlight there's got to be more work done on migratory routes of caribou or something. The migratory route is the migratory route, so doesn't that just stop if there's been something highlighted that makes the project uh, unable to proceed? Isn't that the end of the road? So just tell me how they do follow-up work if you say you cannot put the turbines there because of whatever, impact on flora, fauna, hydrological issues, and or migratory routes, for instance. Oh, very good question. And those things, those things come up from time to time through these environmental assessments. It could be as simple as they change uh, where they're going to place uh, the mine, uh, one section of the mine, or where they're going to put, uh, you know, a turbine, or where they're going to put um, their retaining ponds. Uh, you know, could change slightly their development based on the migratory paths of, say, caribou, using your example. Or if it's in a in a protected area, or if it's in a uh, an endangered species um, like a plant species that we have, well, obviously they can't uh, build on that particular area, but they may be able to move slightly to left or right, or or a kilometer in a different direction, and it may make the project work. That's why you do the environmental assessment. So you uncover these areas that are sensitive in nature, or or that have concerns, and then they have to be mitigated uh, in the best way possible. And then, then from that place, uh, you move forward uh, to whether it's uh, a release with conditions, uh, whether they've mitigated those concerns that were brought forward by individuals or organizations. Uh, I mean, we've got 25, um, 25 different uh, agencies, boards, and departments that are all uh, involved in this. It's a detailed process. Uh, that's been used for decades now, and, uh, you know, um, it's the same process that uh, an abattoir would go through, as we talked about before. It's the same process that a trail system goes through. It's the same process that every mining operation or uh, goes through as well. Does the government foot the bill for all the government work, or does the company play a role in covering the cost? The company pays a role in covering the cost. They have, uh, I, I don't have that at my fingertips, Patty, but there is a fee uh, to uh, submit your registration documents, and then there's a further fee to submit uh, an environmental assessment, uh, an EIS document or an EPR document, uh, based on the amount of work that's going uh, through that process. I appreciate the time this morning, Minister. Thanks. Thanks. Have a great day now. You too. Bye-bye. So, uh, the Minister of Environment and Climate Change, Bernie Davis, will I take John here? Okay, let's, before we get to the news, let's go to line number two. John, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning. I I got some blankets and stuff I want to send to Port of Ash. Is there a place in St. John's that I can drop them off? The only place I know of today would be at Akita Equipment up by Paddy's Pond. 
Okay, that's good. Yeah, there you can't miss it. They have a, a yard and an office right there. It's called Akita Equipment, so you can drop it there today. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to be able to today. It's going to be sometime next week, so... Well, next week there'll probably be some more activity going on, but that's the only drop-off location I know of for today, anyway. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll check with them anyway. Sure. Now, Patty, I just heard Krista Freeland talking about cell phone coverage, mm-hmm. and they're, she said they're going to take it up with the companies again. Well, I've been complaining about uh, cell phone coverage here for the last three or four years. And I've talked. I've talked to you quite a few times about it too. I've talked to the MHA here, and uh, well, you might get cell phone coverage, better cell phone coverage service for a week or so, and then back to normal. I think the reference there is not where it's uh, infrequent or it's unreliable. There's so many pockets of the country don't have it at all. I mean, even place parts of this province, we have pockets where there is absolutely zero cell phone coverage. So I think that's the, the large concern versus, you know, if I have three bars, if I stand on this corner, two bars, if I stand on the corner down the road, that's some of the things, like some of the big swaths, uh, for instance, on the Buren Peninsula. So that's some of the conversation I think you hear between the federal government and the telecom companies themselves. But, yep. Uh, it's uh, it's frustrating when you got something in your hand that you're paying top dollar for, and all of a sudden you open it up to make an emergency call, for instance, and you have no service. So I get it. Anything else, John? Before I get to the news, but, but you're still getting charged for it. Yes, that's right. Uh, yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. I- Anytime, John. All Bye. right. Bye bye. All right. Uh, how are we doing out there this morning, David? Let's go ahead and take a break for the newscast. When we come back, we're speaking about whatever's in your mind. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Okay, we're just about to join uh, MNL President Amy Cody. She's just making her way to the phone. But importantly, you know, the umbrella organizations like municipalities, Newfoundland and Labrador, they do play an active role in helping communities devise emergency plans, maybe learning from best practices from other communities that have done, you know, nice, comprehensive, manageable, workable plans. Also, when we talk about the implementation of climate attention with emergency plans and with public planning, I guess, for development or what have you, you know, I heard one story that there was uh, the folks in Port of Bass, they actually hired an independent environmental consultant from Harbour, Maine, to help them with theirs. So we'll find out now from President Cody exactly what MNL can do on that front. And of course, also talking about the recovery efforts and understanding better and assisting municipalities with understanding exactly how, not only to talk about rebuild, how and where in Port of Basque, for instance, but as we go through sustainable development anywhere in the province, including right here in this city. Like I saw someone tweet something that I thought was quite insightful. He said, you know, before we paved over the marshes and the bogs and we deforested different parts of our communities, all in an effort simply to build homes and apartment buildings and the like, you know, have we even done enough to protect some of those areas that have done a great job in buffering some of the serious storms, especially when we talk about water? So storm surge or rainfall. Uh, I guess she's probably ready. Is she, Dave? You want me to give it a shot? Let's go to line number three now. Say good morning to the president of municipalities, Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Amy Cody. Good morning, Amy. You're on the air. Hi, good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call this morning. Happy to do it. Yeah, so it's been a, an interesting uh, time for us, for sure. Um, you know, as as the president of municipalities, Newfoundland and Labrador, um, I've been in touch with Mayor Button of Channel Portobasque, and, 
you know, we've been keeping in touch with him on what's happening out there, um, you know, what providing assistance and offering assistance from MNL's capabilities, you know, can we help with communications, um, you know, what is it you need from us, reaching out to the other municipalities who are affected to offer the same and just really being, a, you know, a support system for municipalities as they go through crises like this. What role do you play, though, in helping municipalities with emergency preparedness plans? Because what I mentioned in my preamble to your call here today is, you know, there's some communities have done a great job, maybe with the support of uh, independent consultants or best practices to learn from nearby communities. So what role does your group play? Well, MNL's role is basically to work with municipalities to make sure they have the tools in the toolboxes that they need to deal with environmental crises, with climate change, with, um, you know, infrastructure upgrades, with, you know, uh, development planning, any of those items. We are constantly working with our membership uh, through our symposiums and conventions, talking about asset management, um, talking about climate change resilience, uh, climate change, you know, mitigation when it comes to climate change, and how do we best protect our communities. We've also been talking, and, and we've spoken about it several times, you know, on a regional approach. We know that you know, Channel Port of Basque, that's one of the larger communities. They have the mayor and council. They have, you know, a a sizable staff who can assist the provincial and federal government in working through this. But the surrounding communities who have also been severely affected by this same storm don't have those same resources. So we know that a regional approach can certainly assist when we're dealing with these types of emergencies. When we have a regional approach, we have people in place who can work as a group instead of each individual community trying to work and fight and find resources to deal with this. I mean, a lost home in Porta Basque is the same as a lost home in another community. It's just the larger community would probably have more resources to be able to make those phone calls to work through that issue to provide the assistance. A regional approach would help all communities, regardless of size and capability, to deal with that same situation. Well, because in the the circumstance where we don't have the cooperation or collaboration, we have duplicate effort, which costs uh, time and money, unnecessarily so. I mean, I think the same thing that we learned, for instance, with the big snow event here a couple of years ago. We were all impacted, whether it be in Paradise or CBS or Mount Pearl or St. John's or Torbay, to know that we can work together to understand what resources each community has and maybe access to whatever resources are in the private sector when these big things pop up. That kind of stuff goes a long way to the timeliness of response. Yeah, it absolutely does. And that's another thing that MNL, uh, you know, would work with our membership on, helping them have those emergency plans ready and available, helping them find somebody who can help them create that emergency preparedness plan, helping them with, uh, you know, tabletop exercises, practice runs, you know, coming up with scenarios, what would happen, uh, you know, what would we do if this happened or if that happened. Um, You know, development regulations, when we're building our communities, when we're expanding our communities, you know, where, what areas need to be identified as probably not safe to develop on, um, you know, set your boundaries, coming up with policies and regulations that, you know, would mitigate um, damages 
given events like this that we're seeing more frequently, uh, you know, when we're building our communities and when we're expanding and, and really designing our communities or redesigning our communities. What specifically can MNL do on the Southwest Coast right now? Just be a support. Um, offer support where we can. Reach out to our members. Provide assistance where possible. Um, help with communication efforts. Um, you know, be just be able being able to answer the phone and just you know send information out using our social media platform as a, you know as an assistant to the messages that these communities need to get out. We have a large following on our socials, probably larger than some of the smaller communities. A wider reach. Um, you know, we can get those messages out. And you know, I spoke with Mayor Button last night and. And that was the assistance that I offered to him. And, you know, I asked him, is there anything you want me to reiterate tomorrow when I do talk to Patty on open line? And, you know, we just talked about the rumor mill. I mean, the rumor mill is just horrible. We all know how detrimental that can be when people are are dealing with devastation. Um, We want to ensure that the people in our communities are getting their information from the proper sources. Your municipal leaders, your provincial and your federal government leaders will provide you with the best and accurate information. So if there are questions, if you're looking for information or updates, please be sure that you get it from those sources. with the financial package, Mayor Button mentioned to me last night, like they're they're almost a week in now. People are dealing with so much. They're probably not getting all the information. They're not registered. There's people not registered for this funding assistance, this funding uh, that's available to them. They need to register. So I know you had MP Goody Hutchings on earlier this morning. She mentioned the phone number. I'd like to mention it again. To register for the financial assistance package is 1-800-863-6582. And anybody affected by Fiona, the uh, the town of uh, Portabasque also has a phone number set up. It's 709 695 9871 or you can send an email to fiona response at gov.nl.ca yeah they've set up a, a standalone coordinator which i think is a is the wise move and you mentioned register that's register with the canadian red cross so that's where they're that's going right. to use like for the database and also importantly you do have to go through the process of your insurance claim filing because that's going to be part of this as well so those two steps need to be taken as much as folks are completely overwhelmed and the sense of loss is just i can feel it from a port of basque or uh, rose blanche or harbor le or burgio i can feel it here because it's pretty big stuff and as i mentioned to someone a little while ago on saturday i had to purposefully just go out of the house and put my phone down because i couldn't watch any of the images any longer for you know a half hour an hour while i was just trying to catch my breath and i can only imagine what it was like for folks closer by or in those communities. So once again, to register with the Canadian Red Cross, it's a toll-free number. It's 1-800-863-6582. And, of course, there's a line set up in the community port of Basque as well for Fiona Response. It's an area code, of course, 709-695-9871. I appreciate the time this morning, Amy. Yeah, and Patty, if I could just have another sure. moment. I just wanted to reiterate, you know, the value that municipal leaders bring to the table when they're dealing with these emergencies. We are the first people 
to be affected and to be responding to these types of disasters and anything that happens in our communities. And for municipal leaders to have a seat at the table, the importance of the mayor and councillors in this affected area now to be able to have the ear and the attention of the provincial and federal government leaders and all departments who are working to help the residents affected in these communities, having that seat at the table is imperative when we're working through and rebuilding our communities. I appreciate the time this morning. Thank you, Amy. Thank you so much, Patty. Take care, everybody. You too. Bye-bye. David was just asking me a question that I'll have to look up here, but very quickly, I did promise the folks at Seniors NL I'd give this another plug. That's their drive-in bingo tonight, being supported by Verifin and the Verifin Charity. So the drive-in bingo is at the Jack Byrne Arena, cash only, so you got to bring the cash. Doors open at 5.30, the bingo first game call at 7 p.m. There's 14 games. You can buy the cards at the door. Nevada's 50-50, and if you didn't have a chance to grab supper uh, before you went to the bingo, the way to go, fish and ships truck <laughs> is going to be on site. So that's tonight. Doors open 5.30. Bingo starts at 7. And so, I will, Dave, what I'm going to do is I'll take a break and come back and give out that information. This is about the drop-off opportunity at the key to equipment. I can't remember the time, but I'll find it during this break. Uh, don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Louie. You're on the air. Hello. How are you? I'm doing okay, Louie. How are you doing? Oh, well, uh, how are all of us doing? A uh, bit of a hard topic <clears throat> for anyone to speak about uh, any gender, like they're all this uh, sexual assault. Uh, it's a very tough topic, especially not just this project, province, but anywhere. Uh, no, everyone's afraid to talk about it, especially men. It's usually um, a topic that men go through, I suppose you could say, when it involves a, a woman on the other end uh, towards the man. And it's difficult, I admit. It's it's not something easy to talk about for anyone. Um, but you constantly hear that men don't tend to come forward. And I wouldn't doubt that is true to somewhat, but is it completely true? I mean, are there men coming forward that are not being heard, uh, not even being taken seriously? I, for one, have been waiting over a week to talk to someone, and it seems very hard that... Uh, it was hard enough to come forward with it and to sit by and not have anyone to talk to it makes it even harder. It kind of feels like I'm just discredited automatically. Louis, so you've presented at the police headquarters to try to file a formal complaint and nobody took it? I or nobody? Last week, and I was actually told I'd be reached out by early this week, and here we are now. I've called back since, and it's very difficult. Um, it seems like is why I brought the question they say in most, well, the statement that most men don't phone in. Well, here's one that did and never seemed not to be taken seriously. So I maybe the numbers are not correct. Maybe there are more reporting, and I guess that's a question for me. Who has reported anything that no one's been questioned, and therefore it is embarrassing to go forward. Yeah, I, I, t- I totally believe that. You know, men are bad for a lot of things like that, you know, whether it be getting uh, attention for our health and whether it be reporting these types of crimes. I think it's awful that you haven't been taken seriously and you haven't heard back from the RNC in this case to follow up and do further investigation into your uh, your, your claim or your allegation or your report, whatever the right word is to use right there. You know, the, the numbers we hear all the time is only one in ten women report. But it's remarkable that we haven't heard you know, any of these numbers coming regarding men. I would have no earthly idea, Louis, how common it is for men to come forward, or more importantly, how common it is for men to not come forward, because 
you know, I, I suppose some of the rationale is if I'm supposed to be the stronger gender, how could it possibly have happened to me at the hands of a small woman? Well, and of course, I'm exaggerating for on purpose here this morning. <laughs> but I suppose that's probably part of the thought. And then if, uh, you were, if you were sexually assaulted by a man, but you're known as a straight person, and so the, the shame that might be attached to that, which is another social stigma, which is pathetic. So I don't know what the numbers might look like, Louis, but it's a fascinating question. I'd love so, to know. I won't allow that everyone's always assumed I'm completely straight and I may uh, look the role but don't play the part, we'll say. Um, not my fault. Some people are bound for flamboyant and et cetera, et cetera. But uh, it is upsetting that if any man phones in, it shouldn't go this way. No, it shouldn't. Of course Anything not. like this should be taken serious and it's embarrassing and I can see why people either don't or have and don't bother after if they're telling their friends that Something is not taken seriously. And maybe I'm a one-off. I have no idea. But I do know it's a bit of a time to wait. And uh, it feels embarrassing to even have to come on open line to talk about it. So I'm probably not even point to go forward now if they offer. It's, uh, no one should have to be embarrassed enough to come out online with, uh, to speak about it. Look, I'm glad you did. Because I guarantee you, there are men out there listening to this program who have been the victims of sexual assault in the past and have done nothing about it. Uh, so I think it's a brave call that you're making here. Are you going to follow up on your own accord to call and say, is anybody going to call me back? Is anybody taking this seriously? Can we talk? I've Can there be an investigation? Since. Pardon? I've, I have done twice since uh, called in. Okay. And, uh, people don't seem to understand what's going on. but So I guess it's best to leave it there. But it would be interesting to ask the audience to even if they phone under an alias, uh, who else has called anywhere and not been taken serious. Louis, I'm happy to take those calls, you know, because we generally when we talk about domestic violence and sexual assault, the, the key focus has on, been on women who have been victimized. And I understand that because right. there's probably more prevalent in the community than it would be for men to be on the receiving end, but they are. You know, there's no mercy shelter for a man who's been the victim of domestic violence, and it happens. So, you know, I'm happy enough to talk about it because if it happens to one or ten, those are important conversations, and we have to know the supports are there. We have to know that the police will take people seriously when they're willing to come forward with this type of complaint. So let me know what goes on here, Louis. I'll be keen to understand what happens next steps for you and the RNC. And, yes, for men, if you do indeed want to talk about it, what happened, you don't have to get into the personal details on this program, obviously, but we can all absolutely extend the conversation, include women, but extend it to also talk about men because it is a reality. And I'm glad you called, Louis, and I wish you nothing but the best, but I hope you keep me in the loop. Let me know what happens. Thank you, and just say it's uh, not simply about living anymore. It's about a life worth living. I get it, man. You take care and stay safe. You too. Good luck. Bye-bye. Now, that's a brave call, right? Guys are bad for all kinds of stuff like that. And how can I say it? Because I'm a guy. Some of the issues, whether it be with uh, the whole bit about the putting on the brave face and the machismo and the bravado and the toughness, it's fine to be those things, but there is absolutely nothing wrong that when you feel like you're upset, there's no reason that you have to bottle it up and hide it away. You know, it just makes matters worse. I've learned that the hard way several times in my life. And I get it. No, I'm not talking about... Uh, I've turned into some blubber and crybaby because I'm not. I'm hard as nails. But I also realize there's times when it's not that way. And so for Louis to take, on, uh, take this on this morning, and he's been a victim of a sexual assault, 
when we hear the system does not work for people, and there had to be people help navigate the justice system for victims of sexual assault, and then we talk about what goes on and the type of approach taken in the courts, it's not working. When people have been victims, they need to feel like there's a reason to come forward. They need to know that they will be taken seriously. It doesn't mean that every single allegation uttered by every single person has indeed happened to the way that's described, but... People need to be taken seriously. People need to be listened to. Investigations need to happen, whether the complainant is a man or a woman, obviously. Let's take a break. Oh, <sighs> Joey Jenkins and uh, Mark Russell. I talked about him off the top of the program this morning regarding the lack of search and rescue capacity in Labrador and the hopes by Liberal MP Yvonne Jones that that will be attended to in the next budget. Nikki is the spouse of Joey Jenkins. She wants to talk about that particular issue right after this. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Nikki. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking. How are you? Oh, you know. <laughs> I, I can't imagine. So right off the bat, Nikki, I'm, I'm so sorry for your loss. I know that... The story of Mark and Joey being lost was felt province-wide, and I'm, I'm, my deepest condolences. Thank you. I appreciate it. Where would you like to start this morning? Well, I would, I'm calling this morning because of the, um, I guess, MP Jones uh, speaking up and advocating for what we need here in Labrador in regards of uh, search and rescue. And uh, I think, like, part I, I want to call and I want to ask anybody else to, you know, to start supporting and promoting that because um, personally, I think we've had enough. Um, you know, Burnt Winters was one case and that got one inquiry, but that was just for ground search and rescue. We haven't had any type of inquiries into marine search and rescue here. And I do think that we do need some kind of inquiry to do some investigation as to why we're left with all this coastline here and no protection. You know what I mean? It's um, it's it's one thing to um, to say that oh, it's available on the island or Nova Scotia. And it's no time until we can get an aircraft in the air and whatnot. But on the other side of the coin, um, it's still not good enough. Uh, the response times aren't good enough. We need fixed air queen here. We need uh, we need fast rescue craft. We need stations along the coast, both north and south. And we need the we need the personnel on the ground. I try to talk about it as often as I can, and I did it again this morning. It's just if you know if you ask parliamentarians, all three hundred thirty-eight of them, as to why they think it's a good idea or acceptable for there to be zero search and rescue capacity in Labrador, I think you get three hundred thirty-eight blank faces mm-hmm. because it makes no sense. Just the geographical size of Labrador, you could put the entirety of the United Kingdom in Labrador and have space left over. Just the amount of coastline and nothing in Labrador is just unacceptable. It's completely ridiculous, you know. And even when you think back to Burton Winters. If I remember correctly, the cormorant that eventually was dispatched came from Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. There, yeah. there's real massive problems here. I was surprised in the story where uh, Member Jones is saying that she's looking for uh, fast craft rescue stations and three life raft stations, but no mention of fixed wind aircraft, which is a key component. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we definitely need that. Um, I had the pleasure of sitting in front of the Minister of National Defense and the head of the forces while they were in Goose Bay making their announcements. And uh, I'm not going to lie, it was a real 
punch in the gut, for lack of a better term, to hear them say, well, we're here for all this money for NORAD, but there's nothing here for the protection of our people here in this province. Boy, oh boy. Uh, I don't know if this is appropriate or not, and if it isn't, you tell me, Nikki, and I'll stop. Can you tell us a bit about Joey? Where would I start? He was... um it's funny because he was such a quiet person, but he had a very large personality once he let it out. He, uh, he could walk into a room and think that he was unnoticed, but funny enough, since he's been gone, the one thing that I hear about so many people, from so many people, is how Joe would walk into a room and the small would just light up everyone around. Like, you always knew when he was there. He always had a, a very witty sense of humor. He was very kind. He was very caring. He... he he said he wasn't fond of kids, but every child that was around would gravitate towards him, whether it was getting him to show them how to tie their shoes or showing what he was doing with his drone. He was always willing to uh, stop and take a minute to, to teach somebody. I, uh, I remember going to the rooms with him, and they had a camera from the 1900s set up that was used to take portraits of um, the young men who were going overseas to fight in the war. And they had uniforms there that you could dress up in. So he got me to put this uniform on, and he was explaining how the camera worked and the slides and the mirrors and how they'd get under the hood. And it was just the two of us. But when he stopped, there was a crowd of people around us. And he looked up, and he went, oh, and he just stopped. But, like, that, I, I can honestly tell you that was probably the moment that I actually fell in love with that man because i just seen that spark and his true personality came through in those few moments. And then he just went back to being quiet Joe again, you know? He was just uh, he was a very unique man. It's a lovely story. <laughs> that really is. And uh, we're told, and of course I had never met Mark or Joey, but apparently they were the best buddies. Oh, my goodness. Mark is actually the reason how I met Joey. Um, I met him and his girlfriend at the time, who are still continue to be good friends of ours. And uh, they introduced me to Joe, and we were like this little foursome at one point in time. Mark was just, he was so funny, hey? We called him Poppy Mark. Every morning he'd sit down with the flyers and his cup of tea at the table and go through the flyers before he planned his day. And, you know, he, he always had uh, something on the tip of his tongue. As soon as someone's mouth opened, he was ready to give it right back to him, hey? <laughs> Does it help or hurt to talk about the boys? Uh, it helps a lot. But uh, the hurt that comes with it just goes to show how much love you have for them. I can hear it. I'm sure everybody can. Uh, so what I can say is, again, we're also sorry for your loss and the community's loss, the province's loss. And, you know, we'll keep it on the front burner to ensure that any other poor soul, whether it be on the land or on the water that goes missing in Labrador, that the resources are there, that can be dispatched timely fashion so that we don't have to have these difficult uh, conversations, that we don't have to talk about lives that were lost. Nikki, I really do appreciate you calling today. Anything else you want to add before we say goodbye? No, I just wanted to uh, say thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak. And uh, I just want to remind people again just to speak up and push for this, because if we don't push for it, there's nobody else that's going to push for our safety and our men and, you know, our, our women. Uh, you know, we, we have to push for our own um, our own well-being here in Labrador. And I think that uh, until we start doing that more and being that strong voice, we're not going to be hurt. And we need to be hurt. You can count me in. 
Thank you, Patty. Take good care, Nikki. Thank you. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh, man. What a lovely story. To be able to recount the precise moment you fell in love with someone. I'll spare you mine, but yeah. Oh, my. Let's, uh, let's keep going. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the mayor of Channel Port of Basque. That's Brian Button. Mayor Button, you're on the air. Uh, Patty, I can understand when you're listening to those stories and hearing that in a recount of that stuff, how, uh, how emotional that can be. I've got a, a, a greater understanding of things like that, especially this week. No doubt you have. Um, I, I think it's also worth putting out there, you know, we, we don't talk about our municipal, provincial, or federal leaders unless we're talking about their failings or their shortcomings or policy mistakes or whatever the case may be. But in this case, uh, I can only speak for myself from where I sit here on the east coast of the island. I think your leadership has been well-respected and well-received. So I know it's been a difficult time for you, Mayor Button, but just from my own perspective, you're doing what a leader needs to do. Uh, well, you, you know, we're all trying to pull together. It's uh, it's not one single person. It might be one single voice that you hear, but uh, thankfully the uh, people that I have here are working around and, and trying to, to put things together here. It's uh, it's been, like you say, it's been a difficult time, but uh, we're trying to do the best we can. What's the update today, sir? Uh, well, right now, uh, Patty, I, I, I wanted to get on because, uh, as I said yesterday, like structural engineers and uh, the uh, personnel are in place here now and are moving into different areas. We're moving into an area over there now on Water Street West and heading to Baird Street and Knox Avenue. They're going to try to do those areas today on homes that have been flagged. Uh, either they're not sure if the homes are structurally sound or not. Uh, they're going to be looking at them and uh, being able to make some determinations on those homes. Um, their crews are going to be slowly going through those areas. So they're going to, it's, again, it's going to be on Water Street West, Beard Street, and Knox Avenue. And what we need residents to do for those areas, because some of these people aren't in their homes, they need to get their doors unlocked. Uh, we're going to have uh, Canadian Ranger personnel, maybe military personnel that are going to be there. We're going to ask residents to allow these people to go in to make their assessments. Uh, they're not there to make decisions on the spot. They're going to be making their assessments, and uh, you know we need people to stay back from that, allow them to do that. Uh, then they have to compile this information and have a talk uh, about it after the fact, after they've been done. Uh, but they need the space donator to do their work, but we need to get the properties open. Once they've moved from your property, you can then lock up uh, your properties again, and uh, they can uh, continue on to the next. So it's a big piece. Uh, it's a difficult piece because we're trying to find people in the hardest part. Normally, you would say we can start a, a roll call on people on those streets and contact them, but we don't know where everybody is. Uh, they're staying with someone, so this is an avenue through your show of getting the message out to let people that live in those streets like Water Street West and Baird Street and Knox Avenue, if you're hearing this message, you need to be around today to get some of your properties open and these people can take a look at them. Do we have a better understanding now of just how many properties are what we'll call unlivable? Because there was numbers kicking around. It was 76. It was 95. Can you give us a better idea? 
Uh, I'm thinking that right now with numbers that we're looking at in our community, you know, we could be uh, well up over that mark. I'm hearing numbers this morning for the whole region, just for the region. Uh, we're talking about numbers uh, up, up the over 200 plus that there could be uh, once all said and done. Uh, you know, we have houses here yet that haven't been looked at there that are structurally, they look sound, they look perfect. But with uh, things that have been washed into their homes and stuff like oil and those type things, like all those type assessments haven't been done yet. So these houses could become uh, write-offs in all of this as well. Uh, so, you know, it's a, it's just a massive undertaking. That's just in our community. So when I mention numbers like that, I'm mentioning for the whole region uh, that's been talked about and uh, that's being discussed. So it's... Uh, it's quite a it's quite a number, and I know from our community just looking at some numbers, preliminary numbers that we have of not knowing at all. You know, when you put that all together, you know, we're looking at about about five percent of our housing that's been affected for this, right, in our overall community. Just uh, it's just a remarkable number, uh, for your perspective. You know, I know the conversation has gone to you know the donations required. We get to that before we say goodbye this morning. But the thought and the talk about how and where we rebuild, how's that going over with the residents? Because while they're talking about things that they've lost and that their lives are turned upside down and their homes are washed into the sea, are they irritated by that conversation or they understand that conversation? Are they willing to entertain it? Because I've always been curious about timing and the appropriate timing for things like that based on where I sit and my job. You know, in a lot of cases, when you're involved in this type of thing, there's a, probably a lot of pushback about where people are going to live and so on and so forth. In some of the cases, now I won't say all because we haven't talked to all the people, of course, and we haven't made decisions regarding that. Uh, but, uh, you know, talking to residents that have lived there and lived there for many years, I mean, it's been a common thread that we've heard this week is that, you know, I'll never I'll never build there. I'll never live in these areas again. And, uh, you know, it's... Uh, it's certainly going to be a big conversation because, you know, with the difference now with the, the storms are getting uh, more intense, um, uh, more severe when we have them more often uh, with climate change and everything that people have been talking about, it's real. And we have to make decisions that sometimes are, they may not be the most favorable decision, uh, but they may be a decision that most will support. Uh, but, uh, you know, we've got to make decisions that are, we don't find ourselves in, in these situations more often. Fair enough. Uh, And last one, I know that there's been an overwhelming amount of money donated. And uh, oh, last one, even people have to remember, though, to register with the Canadian Red Cross for all the eligible support programs, go through the insurance filing process as well. Those two things need to be done before the money flows to you, hopefully as early as Monday. The donations. The cash, of course, is king. There's been a lot of clothes and stuff. Do you have an updated, itemized list of things that you still do need? Because we know that there's a, another truckload being loaded up today, the key to equipment here by Paddy's Pond around town. So can you give us an idea of what is real need out there? It, it's, you're right. The, the, the amount of clothing and that things that we have, we're, we're probably, we're, we're not probably, we're to a stage that, you know, we just can't accept it anymore we don't know where we can put it so that type of stuff need to be held off there's quite a bit of that and you know what people are like people are only going taking what just what they need when they probably should be taking a few more things that's there so we've got an abundance of that uh but the biggest things that we've been heard over lately is like toiletries and those type things that, that the items that people need you go through quite a bit of that there and the the water and bottled water and so on and so forth that people have been trying to to get we have a a water truck now we have a tractor trailer that's here in the community that's parked in a, 
City Chrysler's old parking lot here right on High Street. Uh, that's there now. So if you have water jugs, water buckets, those type things, you can go there. We have a person there that's taking care of that, that are filling it up. And no matter what community that you live in, that you need that. So uh, we're trying to find the, the biggest needs and why we talk here now, though that's all still in the process to finding, trying to pinpoint exactly what the, the biggest needs are. Stay in touch and let us know where we can help. All right. Thank you, Patty, for having us. Take good care. Bye-bye. That's uh, Brian Button. He's the mayor of Channel Port of Basque. Uh, so there you go. For folks like, for instance, Water Street West, you need to be in and around that part of the community this morning so you can unlock your doors so that the structural engineers can get in there and do what they need to do, make a determination, not on the spot, but eventually make a determination on whether or not you're going to be able to move back in. How are we doing on the telephone, David? Let's go ahead and take a break. Today might be a good day to get on, and of course, the topics are wide and varied, and they're completely up to you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, someone's asking Dave to ask me about a mention that I said earlier about a fundraising concert for Fiona Relief. So there's no real details yet other than the fact that it's going to be on October 30th at uh, the Mary Brown Center, of course, here in the city of St. John's, formerly Mile One. It was Chris Andrews who made the announcement yesterday, and everyone knows who Chris is. He's the front man for Shani Ganock. No final list of the performers that will be in the lineup for that particular event. No report as to what the ticket prices will be or anything of that nature. But put it on your calendar, October 30th, an opportunity to see some of the great performances that are undoubtedly going to be part of the lineup and to help support the folks at the Canadian Red Cross and the people on the southwest coast. I guess, I don't know if it's curiously or coincidentally or whatever the case may be, Shandy Canock recently played a concert in Burnt Islands. One of, the co- one of the communities that really took a hard knock from Fiona. So that is indeed coming up. And as I mentioned off the top when I said that this was happening, it never fails. The people in the arts community, they do this every single time. They just really do. And sometimes, you know, when the, you take your, your talents and the hard work you put into your craft and you apply it for... You know, these types of uh, charitable efforts, I mean, it's laudable. I, I think it's absolutely brilliant. And, you know, sometimes maybe you just want to keep this in mind too. When they've got something for sale or a gig on the go, maybe consider buying some of their stuff, you know, because they're giving it back to you every single time on every single one of these types of events and, in this case, catastrophes. So we were just talking, of course, with Mayor Brian Button from the community of Channel Port of Basque about some of the specific things that they might need. One thing in particular that they absolutely need, like we've talked about razors and shaving cream and uh, canned food and bottled water and uh, baby diapers and the like, but what they really need because there is absolutely none is dog food, dry and wet dog food. So if you're able to chip in, if you're planning on going out to Chris uh, Howlett's place at Akita Equipment today, that might be one thing that you include in your care package or your generous donation. So let's let's do exactly that. And here is something that is completely weird, and I have no idea. Someone asked me, is anyone reporting on this today? Well, it's the first I heard of it. So apparently, a tweet from this fella says that all the clocks in their house were five minutes fast this morning. Spoke to three other people who said they all noticed the same thing. What could that possibly be? Four different communities, uh, four different families or homes, all of a sudden, every clock in the house is five minutes fast this morning. I don't know if I should giggle at that or not, but Dave, have you ever heard the like of anything like that? All the, all the clocks changed on their own accord overnight or five minutes fast? Did we lose five minutes somewhere? Anyway, so if that's you and you know 
that that's happening in your community uh, let us know what you're actually seeing and apparently look I just clicked on the link there's like 25 replies same here same here same here well pretty much I'm paraphrasing but it's happening to a lot of people the, I guess I'll have to check my eye when I go home see what sort of gremlin has crept into our clocks they're five minutes fast anyway let's check in one more time on the Twitter box before we get to the newscast and back with your call and someone's saying uh, that was really you know a couple of courageous and impactful calls you know Louis talking about the fact that so many men and well so many people just do not come forward and file a formal complaint an allegation open a file with law enforcement and that was really quite something to hear and then of course Nikki Jenkins called and her husband Joey Jenkins is one of the two lost in the island lady of course with Mark Russell he's good buddy you know she's encouraging us to put the pressure on because sometimes we we put the pressure on our elected officials about things that are right there in front of us, needs that we have right where we live. And there's nothing wrong with that. But when there's such big conversations surrounding, for instance, search and rescue, the fact that there's none in Labrador, look, it's absolutely something you've heard me talk about it many times. I asked Scotty Hutchings about it this morning when we had her on the program. We've talked about it with Yvonne Jones, and we'll continue to talk about it. And in fact, I'm pretty sure I asked Bill Blair about it, the Minister of Public Safety, or he was the Minister of Public Safety when he was on this program. I can't even remember what we were talking about initially, but I also, oh, he's the Minister of Emergency Preparedness. Part of being prepared for an emergency is to have emergency services on hand, and in this case, search and rescue. So we'll keep it on the front burner, but that was, that was quite the call. Yep, here we go. Just got a bunch of emails and a couple of tweets saying, yeah, me too. The glitch is in the matrix. I don't know what's going on there. But anyway, we'll find out what's going on in the rest of the world with the VOCM newscast here at 11 o'clock. When we come back, still another hour to speak with you. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. So we ended the 10 o'clock hour by talking about the fact that someone reported all the clocks in their house are ahead by five minutes. Well... Since that time and during the newscast, 50 messages for sure that said, mine too. I thought I was losing my mind, but apparently it's happening. Someone's telling me that it's uh, uh, Earth's rotation on its axis, <laughs> axis issue. I have no earthly idea. Or it's a hydro issue. Once again, I don't know. But I'm sure it kind of freaked a bunch of people out that now they know they're not alone. And no, you're not losing your mind. Apparently it's widespread. I'm curious to get home to my own home today or get home to my own home, to see if we've been impacted as well. I don't know what it means. I don't think there's anything to worry about, but it is curious that that's happening like that is. Okay, so which one of these do you want me to take here, David? There's a couple in the queue. I don't know what they are or who they are, but let's go uh, say good morning to the PC member for Topsail Paradise? No. Yeah, Topsail Paradise, and he's the health critic or the shadow minister of health. That's Paul Din. Good morning, Paul. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. Happy to do it. Uh, well, before I start, I like all Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. I just want to say my thoughts and prayers go out to uh, all those affected by Fiona. Uh, certainly hope that uh, that they get the services and programming and assistance that they need in a timely manner, and uh, they they can be at ease knowing all Newfoundland and Labrador are behind them and, and trying to get them through this. Well, hopefully that helps in some form, and you know, I, it's good that there's been a package of relief money established, and it's good that it's going to flow by Monday, but let's hope that we all have done enough to tide them over until some of that government support flows. And I'd also like to add to that, is that that's not the end of the road, because this rebuild and to get things back on the rails on the southwest coast is going to take a long time, so it's not a blip on our radar, it's not going to be all over on Monday when they get some money flowing, it's going to be an issue that we're going to be dealing with for a long time to come. 
No, for sure. And I, I think, you know, uh, we'll certainly come out of it uh, stronger on the other end, I would, I would hope. Let's hope so. Uh, no, Patty, I just want to call in because uh, uh, I know the Minister, Minister Osborne is uh, is having an uh, update at, uh, I think it's 1 o'clock today. And, uh, you know, that's a good thing. I, I, I don't argue that, uh, you know, keeping the public in, informed and, and updated is a good thing. Uh, but I do hope uh, that in what they bring to, de- bring to the board today or bring to the table today is, is going to give us uh, some increased hope on uh, you know improvements in our healthcare system and uh, in fact more along the lines of some immediate uh, help that would uh, would show uh, reduce the wait times and and the workload and the uh, on, on our frontline healthcare workers uh, i mean i know all groups out there have, have come forward and and talked about the situation you know uh, Yvette coffee talked about 600 vacancies and uh, you know the 35% of healthcare positions at the uh, at the healthcare health science center are vacant. You know things like that, and uh, you know things like the retention pro, uh, bonus they put out there has been taken up, and that's great. Uh, but we still have an aging workforce going forward, and we still have 125% of our population without a, uh, a primary care uh, giver. And in fact, up in Western. Uh, Labrador and Grenfell Health, that number is probably as closer to 30%. So I, I, I'm calling because I, I just wanted to get the word out there, and hopefully the minister's listening, that, that we're all hopeful that there'll be uh, some concrete uh, solutions and updates uh, given today, uh, because the calls I get on a regular basis are, are really desperate and, uh, and are really looking for some light at the tunnel. Uh, just an example, uh, there yesterday I received a call or an email from a, a nurse, a nurse who worked 18 years in the province, was away for six years and came back. Um, she cannot go to work. She cannot go to work in this province until she does a 15-month refresher. Uh, and, you know, she told me some of those courses are, were designed for, like, international students and the like, and there's no process set up for her to uh, get advanced credit and do that in a, in a lesser time. Nor is there a process set up where she can get a conditional uh, certification and allow her to do so many things here. Uh, I mean, that's one instance. Th- these are the things we need to come up with some solutions right away that can get these people in the system. And, of course, we know only recently there was a doctor from the U.S. who wanted to volunteer to work in FOGO and didn't happen. And I'm not talking about dropping the standards on these. I'm talking about maybe these people can be approved to work in a certain capacity that helps our system. Yeah, the Fogo Island one is one that I find really to be quite frustrating. Look, there's no short-term solution to fix all the woes, but th- that one there, you know, and of course, I don't know how much authority the minister has on that front as opposed to, I guess, working collaboratively with the College of Physicians and Surgeons, but... They're really trying to have it both ways here. And someone who's uh, a wife of someone who works at the college was furious with me that I dared bring up their shortcomings, but I couldn't care less. I'm going to bring it up again. <laughs> so if we are told that virtual health care is going to be a big part of the offering going forward, and it probably will be, and for many people it can work famously. But if we're going to be told that that's going to be part of it, then inside the need to have been practicing 120 days prior to your application for a license in this province, but virtual care doesn't count, that's not good enough. Yeah. It's just not good enough. Now, and this is not unnecessary criticism made with college, but they see our worries. They hear our stories. 
They know full well that for the first time in centuries there's not a physician on Fogo Island and someone's willing to do it. Let's do what we can to make it happen. Like, come on. Yeah, and you know, I've met with the college a couple of times uh, and, uh, you know, I understand. I understand where they're coming from in terms of uh, ensuring a standard is maintained. Absolutely. Care. But as we move forward, you know, and, and things change, and as you mentioned, virtual care, then, then there has to be changes to, to keep up with the times and not, not putting anyone at risk or not reducing the standard, but there's ways to adjust that to, to, uh, to meet the current demands. You know, and and we're we're not there yet, or we're not moving at. Well, we, I guess we're never moving at a fast enough pace, but we're so critical now, and we continue to see the number of people without doctors uh, increasing in the calls I get each day. I mean, our healthcare system really needs some immediate, some immediate solutions or some immediate actions that start to ease the burden. And they're out there. I, I, I get get the calls on on a daily basis with suggestions on, like as an example. Like, we have about 220 nurse practitioners in the province, and the, the lion's share of those work in the public system, uh, and there are some that are out private. We, we haven't come forward. Government hasn't come forward and increased any seats in nurse practitioners. I mean, they've, they've brought that to my attention. So we haven't increased the seats there. We've increased some, some in the medical field. We've increased in the, in the registered nurses. So, I mean, those are things that we need to look at, the full picture, of what we need, what's our pitch, what's our vision for the future, and how this should line up, and I think that's lined, outlined in the health accord. So now we start to put the pieces together. But we are certainly uh, seems seems government is handcuffed sometimes in 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 moving forward, whether intentionally or by others. And uh, you know it's not good enough. I, I, I'm dealing with a call today now. Um, it's heartbreaking. It's it's related to the health care. I have uh, a couple that were married when they were 18. They're just celebrating their 68th uh, wedding anniversary, similar to a case I had earlier in the year. And they're separated, you know, uh, in two long-term care facilities. And these are all the domino effects of an overworked uh, health care system. And, you know, it's really heartbreaking when, when you hear these stories. And when they're, So, I mean, people are out there looking for hope, hoping there will be something given today, certainly at 1 o'clock. And I'm hoping that the minister does come out with some concrete solutions that will have an immediate uh, effect on our health care system. You know, and, yeah. and, and it does, uh, Patty, just one, one other thing. And, you know, it's not even thinking outside the box. I brought it up before. There was a lady in here to see me yesterday. She's diabetic. Uh, she spoke about the continuous glucose monitoring device, how that would ease so much burden on our system, and yet we're, it's not being entertained. The the issue with the short-term solutions, like there's been some policy changes put forward, whether it be for rural family doctors and a full patient roster and how much money that can bring a doctor, whether it be with the nurses. And this one, were, this one I think, speaks to just how complex the issue may indeed be. Yeah. If in Eastern Health, just for instance, if 28% of the nurses in Eastern Health are in casual positions and they're there because they want to be there, they do indeed have offers to become permanent nurses. There are signing bonuses, retention bonuses, mental health care supports, talking about child care opportunities, and yet many of them are saying, no thanks. Some may indeed bite because, you know, the money is real. Some 3000 dollars that's real money but with so many of them unwilling to do it that's where we get into things like the work-life balance uh, management and how it's operated not just about how much money and where the gaps are but there's got to be larger problems at play that we don't have a great understanding of well look i'll give you another example uh, two weeks ago uh, a friend of my daughter's stayed with us for the weekend she's a nurse she's a nurse from cape breton 
She's down working, doing a seven-week travel stint out in Gander, right? As a travel, and she said she couldn't turn it down because because uh, she's trying to pay her off her student loan and the like. And what you get paid as a traveling nurse is, is uh, good money, and they know what they're getting into. And we have traveling nurses going the other way, you know. So these are things we got to look at. Okay, why, what, what can we do to keep them here? And, you know, things like I know the minister mentioned a little while ago about uh, uh, scope of practice for pharmacists. I've met with pharmacists several times over the last couple of years. And I'm not, this is not coming from me. This is coming from them. This is something they preach for for a long time. How many people go to the ER to get a prescription filled? Mm-hmm. How many? I met with the uh, uh, mayors out at uh, Trinity Bay de Verde there uh, a couple of nights back, and uh, that's one thing they raised, the Joint Mayor's Council out there, about how many go to get prescriptions filled. Yeah, now I spoke with Janice Adu at the Pharmacies, uh, Pharmacists Association. They're cautiously optimistic that the legislative change is in the work so that they will be able to fill some of those gaps as well because it just makes sense. I mean, if we're refilling a prescription that is well understood with a long-term client of your pharmacy, they shouldn't have to go anywhere but to the pharmacist. Now, there's going to be some other complex medical needs that require different disciplines to sure. chime in, but some of these fundamentals, they should be addressed and, uh, and addressed right away. So I don't know what's coming, but uh, to remind our listeners, the press conference, uh, press availability at 1 p.m. From, with uh, Minister Tom Osborne will be carried here live on the Perfect. on our station so people can hear what the minister has insofar as updates go. Uh, last word to you, Paul, before I have yeah. to go. No, I just hope, they, uh, hope people tune in. Uh, this is too important. I mean, if you have a family doctor and you're, and you're in good health, it may not be pressing on you as much now, but, I mean, uh, we tend to be trending to, to uh, more people without those doctors. So it's critical that you listen in and uh, hear what the minister has to say. And, you know, hopefully there's some concrete solutions there. And the House opens next week. I hope to see legislation on that table to allow our, uh, expand the scope of practice for our healthcare professionals, including our pharmacists. Appreciate the time, Paul. Okay. Thank you. Take All care. the best. Bye-bye. It's Paul Bye. Dinn, the PC member for Topsail Paradise. Uh, yes, and very quickly, this is an email from uh, what's signed as, and I hear from this person a lot, and I'm glad he does contact us, fed up paramedic. We have to... Make sure we include all the different disciplines because they are wide and they're varied and they're all well-trained and professional and the paramedics are part of it. Pretty sure I broached it with uh, Minister Osborne last time he was on this program because I try to keep that top of mind because it's one thing when you get to the hospital, but what about when you need a first responder like a paramedic to bring you there? And all the gaps and the disparity in pay between rural and urban and the pressure and the time and the burnout and the paramedics who are leaving and still no update on you know, beyond to bringing all the air and ground ambulance into one authority or one dispatch, that's okay, fine, but that doesn't deal with the paramedics issue. So I appreciate the fed up paramedic keeping me in the loop and keeping me on my toes to make sure that's part of the conversation. Before we go to the break, we're going to three. Bill, you're on the air. How are you, Patty? Okay, Bill, how you doing? Thanks, going. Uh, nice time we talked to you. How you keep it all in your head and keeps all the knowledge and with all the topics, it's, 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 it's a talent. God love you. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Uh, I'm just, I just called to tell Dave, uh, just past St. Mary's, heading east, uh, the break before the, the little, little brown sign that says Big Triangle Bond. Oh, yeah. Somebody, I guess they lost it and just gave up on it, but there's a, it's, it's, a, it's a love seat, not a couch, but a really, it's, it's large enough that it looks like a small moose. I actually cut between traffic and change lanes that time, so when you're past St. Mary's, the big brown thing that looks like it's a moose coming up over the, the hill, 
I guess that's the good news because the, the love seat's not going to jump out in front of you. Well, you know, that's the unsecured load, very likely, isn't it? And we see that a lot, especially here as you get closer to the dump, is people want to go to the landfill and they want to drop off their stuff. I get it, but tie it down. I mean, if you took the time to load it up, tie it down so it doesn't bounce out and end up on the highway. Guilty of it once, Betty, and uh, and it was it was it was kind of traumatizing, you know. But I agree a thousand percent. Red straps, red straps aren't that expensive. I found out the hard way too. I'll admit freely, it's not like I'm perfect. I'm the furthest thing from. I lost a Christmas tree out of the back of the truck one time, making my way down to Kitty Vitty to dump it off. And here I am, too stupid to even just put up the tailgate, which would have kept it in. But no, I made my way down. Bang. What? Stainless steel barbecue. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Appreciate the call, Bill. One more more thing I want to drop on you. Sure. Uh, I'd never heard you say it, I don't know, maybe you did broach it, but did, did you bring up at all the week uh, two pipelines, underwater pipelines that blew up uh, from the Russian feed uh, uh, No, I haven't talked about it. It's hard to know what people are interested in, but yeah, that's the I Nord Stream too. Well, I mean, I, I guess if I had enough actual information to make a clear determination, I would. Someone sent me a link earlier. The implication is that it, there's two schools of thought here, isn't there? There's quotes from uh, President Biden saying that they will shut down that Nord Stream 2 come hell or high water. That's a paraphrase. So people are suggesting that the Americans sabotaged the pipeline. There was no pipe, There was no gas flowing through. It was only the gas that was in the pipeline is what's been leaking. And then the other school of thought is to further escalate the war, the Russian sabotage it themselves. I don't know. I honestly, God, don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know either. But the bottom line, uh, I, and that's why I asked. See if you, if you had some feedback. But the bottom line is terrifying. It is, and I mean, what the pending winter looks like for energy sources in parts of Europe. Uh, there's got to be an awful lot of worried Germans out there. That's for sure. I think there should be a whole lot of worried humans out there because there's a push for uh, anyway. You think about break. Have a good day. You too, man. All the best. <laughs> Cheers. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, Nord Stream 2. Look, at those types of topics, I'm happy to take them on. I have a limited knowledge about what what exactly is going on. But I tell you what, if it's ever determined that one entity or another took uh, this military mission on, is what in essence it would be, to sabotage a, a natural gas pipeline, I mean, if regardless of who did it, they should be taken to task by the international community. If the Americans sabotage it, which I'm leaning towards the Russians did it to themselves, you know, a reason to further escalate and to alienate some of the folks who are running to Ukraine's side by implying that the Americans did it, I just don't know. I really do not. Uh, but the clock issue, apparently it's a frequency issue at Holyrood. So when they change the frequency of electricity from 60 hertz, it has an impact on things like your clock's at home. I didn't know that. Thanks for the info. Let's take a break. Don't go away. And welcome back to the program. Will I just call line four caller, David? Is that the play? Okay, let's go to line number four. Good morning, Doug Healy. You're on the air. Hello, Patty. How you doing, buddy? Great today, sir. How about you? Good. I haven't seen you in 20 years since I worked for selling cars with you years ago. Oh, is that right? You're that Doug Healy. There you go. Yeah. yeah. How you doing? Fantastic. Thank you. Great. I just wanted to do a quick talk about Operation Fiona here. I happened on the West Coast. I'm sure you're all aware by now. Sure we are. What are you, do- what are you doing for it? I was the first transport truck driver to arrive with the load of cars filled with all the goods and services. Good on you. So who organized that particular truckload? Uh, all the truckloads have been 
it has all been organized by one person, and it started on a Saturday night. The news media and some of the people are reporting that it was a transport company that did it. It was this company. It was it was all by one person who started this all on her own. It was Dana Metcalf with Raven News. And I know a lot of people have their opinions and whatnot, but this is one of the biggest humanitarian efforts that has happened on this island. And I think she should be getting some kind of recognition for this. What did you see when you got to Port of Basque, Doug? Uh, when I got to Port of Basque, from my point of view, I mean, it was a lot of devastation, Patty. I mean, you know, driving a transport truck, you can't really get down to the smaller parts of the community and see. But just going through and getting to the pier and down in the area, a lot of damage. A lot of damage. I can't even imagine. Like I said to a few people earlier, I, like everybody else, I was watching it all unfold on Saturday. And at one point, I just had to throw the phone away, get outside, and give it a break for a while because I was just mind-blown. I was heartbroken. I was terrified all at the same time. It was just amazing stuff. And to tell you the truth, once you get on the other side over on the Cape Breton side, it's just as bad. Now, I mean, there's no hot. A lot of the houses aren't close to the water there, so there wasn't much of that kind of damage. But the amount of wind damage that happened on that side is just unreal. I can imagine, you know, and it wasn't all about the wind. It wasn't all about the rain for the communities on the southwest coast here. It was about the storm surge. And what we do about that, I don't know. I guess it's all going to be a matter of controlling how we develop and where we rebuild because the storm surge is, is uncontrollable. Yeah. There's nothing you can do about that. It, it, it's going to come. It's going to happen when it happens. You know, you can rebuild, but do you want to rebuild right where you were last time in case this happens again? You know what I mean? Yeah, well, we've seen the stories, for instance, and this was the go-to area, was people building, rebuilding, 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 say, for instance, in the close proximity to the Mississippi Delta, until at the moment in time where the insurance company said, you do it if you want, okay. but we're not covering it any longer, so they stopped doing it. Yeah, and that's the scary part. Is this going to happen? And if it happens again, then they're not covered. So, you know, things are going to have to change. Yeah, it's kind of whether we like it or not. Yeah, sorry, Doug. I mean, you know, obviously the weather's changing and uh, people are just going to have to change some kind of lifestyle, move to higher ground or, or, you know, a safer area. I appreciate the call, Doug. I wish you safe travels. All right, Patty. Thank you. All the best. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break for the newscast. And again, we're trying to find someone to give us a better understanding about the clock issue and apparently some uh, energy frequency adjustment made at Holyrood Thermal Generating Station. I don't know how any of that works. I honestly don't. But if we can get someone to explain it to us all on the show, we're going to do exactly that. Let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. And welcome back to the show. Uh, Let's go. Line one, Charlie, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. I've got four four little uh, shorties this morning, but uh, it'll depend on you too, of course. (laughs) No doubt. The... the, um, You've heard of the concept of entropy. If you uh, if you scramble an egg, you go from the order of the egg, complete uh, in itself, to disorder, right? Chaos. And you can't go back from the scrambled egg to the egg. Well, you, you, you would agree with that? Yeah, I know what entropy is. Yes. So time travel, uh, they've always regarded time travel as impossible, except in science fiction. Well... There's the latest experiment it was done with a quantum computer, 
they actually uh, did it with a particle. Uh, they delayed it or sent it back for, it was, of course, a, a, a very, very, very small amount of time. But the fact is, if it's uh, possible to do like that on a, on, on a micro level, then uh, I, I always think things are possible on a macro level. So I would, I would say uh, all these things that are visiting us, uh, people say they can't reach us because it's too far away. Well, perhaps they've uh, they've managed uh, time travel. Who knows? Anyway, I'm, I'm at it all the time. At that for that one. I'm at it all the time. <laughs> what? I'm at it all the time. Time travel. Uh, you are. Yes, God, Christ, nothing to it, Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Guardian. The Guardian recently, um, the Cornwall Insiders Group. They published a study by them on. Uh, the cost of the green hydrogen, and uh, they looked at it in terms of other uh, sources, and they concluded it's much, much, much more expensive than other sources that we uh, we could use that would be just as green, probably. So I'm wondering, uh, that project over there, I know that in the Memorandum of, of Understanding, they didn't exactly agree on a price or anything. And I'm wondering if they really know that at the end of all this uh, hullabaloo, when they get it all finished and uh, there's uh, things up and running everywhere through our forests and so on, I'm wondering if they, uh, if when they set the cost, a country like Germany is going to say, I'm sorry, boys, we can, because uh, this is three years in, I think we can get this a lot cheaper than uh, we can get it from you. And... Uh, I think we should all be aware of that because the end product, the end cost, I don't think we've uh, we've looked at that very much. I, I guess they have, but how accurate is that, you know? But isn't that a problem for John Risley? Not yes, me? it is. Yeah. And, I mean, Risley's a pretty successful fellow. I would imagine he's not going to proceed with any of his own money or capital he's able to raise without contracts or power purchase agreements in place. But, I mean, I've looked at some of the green, blue, uh, gray hydrogen issues, some of the complexities for storage and transportation and cost for the end user and uh, energy loss and all the rest of it. It does look like a bit of a stretch play, but, of course, not my money. Okay. You mentioned education and uh, people losing time and the effect on uh, on today's society. Mm-hmm. My my feeling is that I, I I know it would have an effect to losing time, but if you're the time you spend is uh, studying stuff that's largely irrelevant, and I'm talking about the, at the higher levels, then that's the biggest waste of time at all. I'd I'd like to uh, to ask this. If you take a, an average high school student and ask them to write a paper on uh, what's happening to our atmosphere in terms of uh, the warming, in terms of uh, the gases entering and the hurricanes that we get from that and the destruction and so on, I'll bet you, you wouldn't get too many that can, that can sit down and write uh, a coherent paper on that subject without having to go and research it. And my feeling is that uh, uh, given given what we know, and, and it's not that uh, hard of science either, it's fairly simple concepts, given what we know today and what's happening, the fact that a student leaving high school could not do that says an awful lot about our, our curriculum. 
But I'm not sure that's the case, though, Charlie. I mean, I can only speak from the my social circles and the people I know and their children. I mean, there was massive coordinated uh, events here held by high school students regarding climate change in action, you know, bring it right to the seat of government. Certainly, I know between my sons and their buddies, they get it. They understand the issue. One of them participated in some of those events. And so I think that I don't know what the formal curriculum looks like on that front, but they absolutely do understand it. I think if we're talking about any generation that gets it, no one gets it more than them. Well, that's not what I've seen. I've, I've talked to, to students that are on the top from St. John's or on the very top of the scale, and their knowledge of it was very, very small, except, of course, what they get through TV and so on. And these, these things that they go and protest, they're organized by the school, and you can easily uh, 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 take 15 minutes to, to, to talk about some of these. No, they were organized by the students here. Get them all worked up. But as far as uh, 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 the knowledge that they should have on this, I think you better go back and check that again, because I don't think they really have. I don't have to recheck what I'd lived, Charlie. With all due respect. I've lived it too. Well, I mean, you're telling me the school organized it. It's simply not the case here for the the uh, protests and the rallies that I've, I'm familiar with. They were organized by students. And one yeah, of them... I'm sorry, I'm sorry about that. The, the school permitted them, in a sense. Uh, they weren't going to punish them and so on. And uh, a few students, uh, a few of the more aware, uh, organized the thing. I, 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 you're right on that, yes. Okay. So, I mean, there's always uh, an issue regarding curriculum to keep up with what's happening in the world today and life skills required to navigate this weird old world. Uh, But on the concept of learning loss, I have a deep-rooted fear that we haven't done enough to understand it in this province. We just have not. If there was that so-called high school symposium that happened just after school was dismissed back in uh, July, well, what happened? or June. What happened there? What were the recommendations? What's been adjusted in the curriculum this year for the various grades to accommodate? What is the distinct learning loss? Not because I say so, but because people who know more about it, and there's one professor that I continually quote from uh, Western University, quite clear on the matter, quite clear what a recovery plan looks like, quite definitive on what the implications are, short-term, long-term, because if you are just getting partially uh, taught the curriculum uh, in its entirety in one grade to another, eventually might not be this year, but it's going to catch up to you. And it's going to make the difficulty in high school that much more onerous. It's going to make the difficulty in transition to post-secondary that much more complicated. So if we're not dealing with it actively, we're making a huge mistake. Paddy, the transference of skills, the university will complain about high school students that they can't organize a paper or write properly, uh, never mind spelling and, and, and the basics. The high school will complain about the elementary, the same thing. What they're talking about are, are, are these type skills as opposed to content. That's, that's what I found and what I'm hearing now when, when, when organizations complain. Some of them even complain about basic math as skills, which, which they should because we've pretty well downgraded the effort there. As far as content in the sciences and the, in, in mathematics and that, uh, the transference from high school to, uh, to, to university, they, they go in and, and uh, very often uh, they do something entirely different, unless it's a bit of calculus or something like that. So I think we have to look at what, the, what uh, they're talking about there in terms of what, what is at a loss. But anyway, I'd like to conclude with this statement. We've we've decided on this earth that growth is more important than sustainable growth that protects 
the environment and protects people, protects our home. We demonstrate that over and over all the time in spite of the warnings of scientists and UN people and so on. We'll go with growth every time. Our new uh, uh, leader, Pierre Polyver, I think his name is, uh, that's all he's interested in. He's got half Canadians on his side, perhaps more. And when you get people like uh, that came on your show a couple of days ago uh, uh, from St. John's, an educator, former educator, former mayor, who, who, who talks about the southwest coast and one of his things very briefly, doesn't even even, even mention climate change. He, he didn't even express condolence, by the way, to, 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 to people down there. He, skirt, he skirts the issue every time he comes on. He's, he's, he's more typical than, than, than your other caller, Tom, is. Uh, they just will not deal with it. They don't want to deal with it. It's all oil and gas, cruise ships, and you name it. And that's as far as they go in their bubble. And I'll conclude on that, sir. I, I think the same commentary or observation or criticism, whatever it's intended to be, can be the uh, repeated for many people in different walks of life because... People worry about what's important to them. And not everybody out there either has the want, the will, or the capacity to focus in on you know, all the issues of their time and of their day. They play their favorites because that's what they're interested in. That's where they think the biggest uh, impacts can be made. You know, Some of it is absolutely gibberish, some of it is fair, some of it's on point, and some of it is not worth talking about. But you know, that's just, I think, human, uh, human nature, is that people just have their own, whether it be agenda, and I think that's the right word there, they have their own agenda, and they feel it by talking about the issues inside that envelope, I suppose. Tom said it very clearly. He said all the issues out there pale in comparison to the threat to human existence. We saw that in Port Basque. We see it in Pakistan, a third of the country covered in water, all the agricultural lands gone. We see the fires. We see the floods. We see it all. And if you equate that as just another issue... Of course that, I don't. I talk that, about it all the time, Charlie. Okay, okay, yes, I'm not, I'm not saying that, but, but you just said people are choosing their issues and so on. You've got to prioritize sometimes, and if people can't understand what's happening to our planet with all that's happening, not only that, what's been explained to us by science, then they're living in a total bubble. Yeah, but you're, are you saying that it's my job? It's my job to to teach them or it's my job to not allow them to have their own opinion or something i'm not no, sure it, it, no it's not your job i'm not blaming you all i'm saying is it's going to take a lot of people for their home to be washed away or flooded before they realize what in the hell is going on Other, otherwise it's oil and gas it's cruise ships that's all i'm saying Okay. I mean, uh, it doesn't matter where anyone thinks they're coming from on those types of fronts, but the fact of the matter is, if you don't think it's a problem that the uh, surface sea temperature is rising, then you're really missing a pretty big boat, bigger than any cruise ship that's ever made its way through the Narrows. So, I mean, I, I guess I can leave it at that. Appreciate the time, Charlie. Okay, sir. Take it easy. Take bye care. Bye-bye. All right. The quick update or quick reminder on the fact that Misty is missing. Line number two. Mary, you're on the air. Oh, hi. Hi, Patty. Thank you. Uh, it's a great conversation I was just listening to there. Yes, this is a change in tone and tenor again of the conversation. Misty is still missing. Um, more and more, you know, I just really think she's she's alive. I don't think she's in the area that where she went missing. I think maybe she got picked up by someone. 
and that person does not realize how to contact me. So I just am trying to spread the word. Misty is a black shaggy terrier that went missing around the Freshwater Bay Trail, the Dead Man's Path Trail to Freshwater Bay on Monday. She's 22 pounds. She's an older dog, and um, she has a loving family. And my phone number is 647 707 0498. Now, she could be anywhere now. She, I don't think she's in that area because many people have searched the area. So it's really to spread the word out there. If anybody knows anyone who has a dog that they're trying to find the, the home of, um, if, if she fits that description, to please call me. We'll continue to broadcast it out there, and hopefully Misty makes it home. Thank you, Mary. Thank you, Patty. Thank you. Take care. Right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, and someone says, saying they agree with Charlie 100% insofar as the insufficiency of the public school curriculum. I mean, I talk about education till I'm blue in the face on this show. I really, truly do. So I think it deserves more conversation. You know, I'll say this again. When people are polled, especially around election time, what's important to you? And it becomes, it's the economy, it's taxes, it's health care, it's the environment, it's criminal justice, it's border security, it's whatever. And then education somewhere down the line. When, in fact, if education made it to the top of that heap, then the problems in healthcare and the economy and taxes and immigration and, and everything else, we'd do a lot better job with it, wouldn't we? Let's take our final break of the morning. Don't go away. And welcome back to the program. Someone looking for some additional information or a reminder about an event coming up tomorrow evening at the Delta Hotel here in the city of St. John's at 7.30. It's free admission, and it's Ask an Expert all about adult ADHD. We had a lot of response to a conversation, I guess it was yesterday we had with Dr. Janine Hubbard about this particular event and about adult ADHD and just how many ADHD and how many more people are being diagnosed with it these days and the implications on real life. So it is indeed tomorrow at 7.30. They do want you to call and register or just go to the website to register. So you can either go to uh, APNL.ca, which is the Association of Psychology uh, Newfoundland and Labrador, you can just go there. It's free to go, but they need to know how many people are coming, so that's why they want you to register. The panel, the lady who's the executive director at the Center for ADHD Awareness Canada, Juanita Baudry, will be part of it. Dr. Ra Dr. Roxanne Cooper, family physician. Dr. Jolene Hancock is a psychiatrist. Heather Paul is a registered psychologist, moderated by Dr. Janine Hubbard. And one, I think a couple of people, people picked up on this, one mention was of a professional who's going to be part of the panel to talk about lived experience with adult ADHD. And neither one of us said the lady's name because this wasn't really my place to say it, I didn't think. And I guess Dr. Hubbard agreed with it. But I spoke with her yesterday afternoon. It's my great friend Chrissy Holmes. Chrissy Holmes is the uh, host of the St. John's Morning Show, and of course, on CBC, and has been recently diagnosed with ADHD, adult ADHD. So we spoke about it yesterday afternoon. And, uh, yeah, she's part of the panel. And good on her for doing exactly that. And so, of course, Chrissy and I go back a long way as co-hosts of Out of the Fog for all those years. So good on her for participating in that particular panel. And one more shout-out for the folks at Seniors NL and Verifin Care with their drive-in bingo tonight. Uh, it's at uh, 7 p.m., first game call. I don't know what the first one will be, probably straight line. Doors open 5.30, cash only. There's 50-50 in Nevadas. And if you need a feed, the, wee, uh, the way to go, fish and chip truck will be in the lot at the Jack Byrne Arena. So now you're up to date. 
We're still going to try, even if it might not be as big an issue come Monday, about the fact that all our clocks changed. I personally think it's an interesting phenomenon and what caused it. Apparently, it's a, a frequency adjustment made at Holyrood. But we'll try to figure out how that works and why it is that way when we speak to you next. So, the uh, tomorrow we don't have a show. So as you know, tomorrow is the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. It's a federal holiday. All businesses have been given their own, the opportunity to make their own decision about how they'll handle the day tomorrow. So that's it, and we don't have a show. I'm a little bit surprised, but I'll take it. But it is a day of importance across the country to listen to stories for people with lived experience once again, whether it be re- residential schools or otherwise. So we will not be here tomorrow, but we will indeed pick up this conversation on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. We'll talk Monday. Bye-bye.